Welcome to Heartland Christian Center Sermon of the Week. You will be able to find more Heartland sermons at hcc.ag or Heartland Christian Center YouTube channel. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with others. We hope you enjoy this week's message by our lead pastor, Dr. Phil Willingham. Pastor Matt made mention, man, we're coming up to our Super Bowl Sunday of all Christianity. Christmas is a promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and Easter is the proof. Come on, you believe that? Easter, he proved who he was and what he did. He went into the cross. I want you to take your worship guide this morning, and if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 15 and Matthew 27. We want to welcome all of our campuses. They've jumped online with us, our Hebron campus, our Wanata and North Johnson. Come on, all of the online, people watching at home, people that are still traveling, trying to get back from spring break. Come on, would you give all the online audience a real good Valparaiso hand clout? Come on, let them know we're here. And I didn't bring my horn with me, so you're going to have to help me preach. I forgot my preaching horn today. So some of you wasn't here last week. You missed it. But let me ask you a question. What, what, would, what would you say is the greatest injustice that this world has ever seen? I mean, there are a lot of, lot of candidates that we could talk about. There, people say, well, certainly the Holocaust in World War II, almost 3 million Jews were killed in the killing centers that, that Germany, Germany um, occupied there in Poland. Other people say, yeah, but what about in the 1970s? The greatest injustice was the slaughter of the Cambodian killing fields. It is estimated that the deaths of 1.5 to 2 million people happened in a four-year period. Nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population was wiped out during that time. Other people say, well, Pastor, the, the greatest injustice has to be the Rwanda genocide that happened in the 1990s. Matter of fact, from April 7th to July uh, in 1994 to July 15th, during that period of about 100 days, it is estimated 500 to 662,000 people died during that genocide that was happening. Other people say, well, certainly... The 900,000 abortions that happen in the United States every year, that's got to be the, the greatest injustice that, that has ever happened in this world. But while those are, those are certainly serious things, I want to su- suggest to you this morning that, that the greatest injustice that ever this world has ever experienced happened over 2,000 years ago, and it was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because when you think about it, Jesus Christ was a victim of, of this gross miscarriage of justice. His trial was rigged and, and didn't even comply with the Jewish law. The authorities, the, the witnesses that the authorities used, they were all bribed. The charge against Jesus was changed once they moved out of the Jewish court into the Roman court. They just they changed these charges. And then the Roman governor, he himself, literally declares Jesus innocent. He could find no fault, and yet he turns him over to the mob to be crucified. And people say, well, well, well Pastor, I know that was a, that was a great injustice, but, but surely there, there, are, there are many incidents that happen in the world where men have been condemned to death and they were innocent. Right? Come on. I mean, when we go into prison and you go in the jail, rarely do you find people in prison say, I'm guilty. <laughs> Everybody in there says, I'm innocent. Why me? But, but I select this event as being the worst injustice carried out simply because Jesus wasn't just innocent of the charge that was against him. The Bible teaches us he was totally completely sinless and innocent. Now think about that. Jesus never committed one outward sin. He never stole. He never lied. He never committed adultery. He never committed any inward sin. The Bible teaches us that he never coveted. He never never lost. He was never deceitful. He wasn't selfish. He, He wasn't greedy. He wasn't disobedient. Furthermore, when you look at the life of Jesus, every 
minute that he lived upon the face of the earth for 30, 33 and a half years, he lived his life loving God with his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength, but he also loved his neighbor as himself. He's a total sinless, innocent person, and yet he's going to get crucified. Now, we're going to celebrate Easter next Sunday with, with, with the, the question of who are you looking for? But this morning, I want to take you to the seven last sayings of Jesus, or seven expressions, and I want, to, I, want to, I want you to notice that one of those expressions is given to us in a question. Now, now traditionally, these seven expressions are seven sayings. They're, they're used on Good Fridays, and, and traditionally, people will go through the Gospels, and they will see seven different times where Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. Matthew and Mark, where we're going to look at this morning, he's going to cry out to God. But in Luke's encounter, you find Jesus forgiving those who are, who are persecuting him and killing him. He's looking over at the, at the thief on the cross, and he reassures. Now, listen, you want something to mess up your theology? All you've got to do is think about the thief on the cross. He never got baptized. He never joined the church. He never gave a tithe that we know of. He never served in ministry. And yet, when he looks at Jesus, even though he starts out like others mocking him, he eventually acknowledges that he's a sinless, a sinless son of God. And he looks at Jesus and he says, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus looks at that sinner hanging on the cross with him, that thief, and says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Wow, isn't that amazing? That'll just wreck your theological world. I thought you had to do that. No, no, listen, what this man proves to us and what we have to understand is our faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ is what saves us. Don't let ever let anybody else try to tell you anything different. But on that cross, Jesus in Luke's gospel, he will talk to the crowd, he will talk to the thief, and he will ultimately commend his spirit to the Father. And then in John's gospel, we find Jesus talking to his mother Mary and to John. He says, Mary, your son, John, your mother, and he declares the end. Now, now since the 16th century, these sayings have been widely used. And according to Matthew and Mark, the last words that Jesus speaks before he dies is in form of a question. And the question that Jesus asks when he's on the cross, it's different than all the other questions that he ever asks. It's not a rhetorical question. It's not really a teaching tool that he was trying to use at that moment. But rather, it is a, it is a question that, that brings difficulty to hear. It's an agonizing question. Because it's a question that most people would have thought that Jesus would have never, ever asked. It's, it's a question that's so raw and so threatening, it's almost like it's opening up a wound. Because it appears that Jesus made the expression some type of despair or some type of hopelessness. Now listen, how many understands that it's, we're, we're, most of us are not real good at letting those people that we admire be human. You ever, you ever noticed that? If you admire somebody, if you put them up on a pedestal and you think that, you know, they're, they're like this, and sometimes when they show us their humanity, we struggle with that. Now, this is what I always say. People in Jesus' day, they struggled with Jesus' divinity. They could never comprehend that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They could never comprehend before Abraham was, I was. They never could put their arms around the divinity of Jesus. But in our culture today, we've got people today that when you say you're a Christian, they can't accept our humanity. Hello? You, you tell, listen, let me, have you ever, have you ever sold somebody something? And they, you, they, you, you know, they bought it in good faith, and you sold it in good faith. And, but after they bought it, it broke or didn't work properly, and they brought it back to you, and they say these words, I thought you was a Christian. <laughs> Hello, you ever done that? 
or, or maybe you, you, you tried to help somebody. It didn't turn out right. And maybe it, it turned out different. And they look, well, I, but I, I never would believe. I thought they were a Christian. People use that a lot in church. Hello? What is that? They Listen. People wants to believe that we are divine. We're not divine. There's, there's not any angel wings on my shoulders I'm feeling today. Are you with me? But people struggle with our humanity. And listen, anybody that we admire, I never will forget, first time I remember seeing my dad really cry. Now, my dad was a World War II veteran. Wasn't a big guy. Just a, they called, they, they, they called uh, he, had a, he had a nickname when he was in World War II called Tuffy. He just, my dad stood about five foot nine. He was, he was kind of built like a Popeye. He was kind of a stocky guy. But I never forget when I'm just a kid, and I apologize for not remembering the exact age, but we go to Anderson, Alabama. His mom's been sick, and she dies. And all the way home from Anderson back to Decatur where, where we were living, where my dad passed in a little church, my dad didn't say a word, didn't talk about nothing. He walks into the house, sits down on the couch. My mom walks into the living room. He looks up at her, and he says, she's gone, and then he bursts into tears. And I, I'd never seen my dad cry like that. And immediately, I begin to think, wait a minute. Big men do cry. Hello? Tough men can feel some pain. Some, are you with me this morning? So, so anytime we see somebody that we admire expressing a human agony, sometimes we struggle with that, especially if this person is Jesus Christ himself. Because, listen, here's, here's the problem. If, if Jesus gets into a situation where he begins to doubt his God and his faith begins to waver, then just maybe all of our faith could be shattered. True? Hey, if Jesus, the Son of God, could ever get into a pit so low that he wonders, and listen, when you read this story, you're going to find out that Jesus was a man, Isaiah 53 and 5, he was a man acquainted with grief, and he's a man of sorrows. And this is more than just an emotionalism thing. That This is a reminder that Jesus really cares for us. You understand that? And I know we struggle with that in our culture today. We want to think that God is this distant deity away from us. But listen, Jesus proves to us how much he cares for us and how much he really wants to carry the burdens that we carry. Matter of fact, it's not in your note, but there's three times that the Bible records that Jesus wept. The first one is in John 11:35. Most of us know that story. If you ever had to memorize a verse when you was a, as a kid in a Sunday school class or a youth group, they said, you got to remember a Bible verse. We all remembered, we, we would memorize John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus what? He wept. Where's Jesus weeping at? The Bible says that Jesus wept for our friend. His friend Lazarus was sick, and he dies. Jesus shows up, and the Bible says that he wept. So he wept for a friend. Secondly, in Luke 19 and 41, the Bible says that Jesus wept for a city. He looks out over Jerusalem prior to going to the cross, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I, would I have gathered you together as a hen does a little bruise, but you would not do it. And the Bible says that he, he wept over a city. I ask pastors all the time, when's the last time you wept for a friend and you wept for a city? You want to know where your compassion is? You look at the people around in your life. You know their brokenness. You know their struggle. And you know that Jesus Christ is their only hope. Sometimes the only thing we can do is to go to God in prayer for them. And we will weep when we see the desperation that many of our people in. Well, good preaching, Pastor Phil. But this is the third time that the Bible says that Jesus wept. Write down Hebrews 5 and 7. I should have put this in your notes. But Kyle told me I had too many scriptures this week. Now, isn't that something? When the tech guy says, you got too much word. Now, I understand what he's saying. These screens are only so big, but you've got some notes. I, I love Kyle. He does a great. Don't, don't Kyle do it. Come on, give Kyle a real good clap. Kyle, did you hear that? Did you hear that, Kyle? Thank you, Kyle. You heard that. Listen, Hebrews 5, 7, write this down. The Bible said, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleading. Now, listen, with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. 
God heard his prayers because of his deep reference for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Listen, each time Jesus wept, he reminds us, Hebrews 4 and 15, that he's truly touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I want you to understand that. Sometimes we come to this season of Easter and we, we, we kind of move through it and, and we say, yeah, you know, we went to the cross and yeah, this happened and, and now that goes on. But listen, his tears are a reminder that he is moved with the feelings of our infirmities. He cares about your family. He cares about your city. He cares about your life. He cares enough that he wept and he prayed with tears and pleading while he was upon the face of the earth. His prayers wasn't always just, oh, oh, Heavenly Father, it's just, it's just glory. Now listen, Jesus would often minister in prayer to his Heavenly Father, pleading for this nation and this world that he was living in. Are you with me? So that's my intro. So now let's go. Let's go to Mark chapter 15. I want to walk you through this. I want you this. It's a very interesting story. On the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Everybody say six and nine. Okay, that's 12 to 3, our time, okay? Noon to about 3. At, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama le That's close. <laughs> which means, which, <laughs> yeah, see, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question. When some of those standing around heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Now watch this, at, at the very center of these, of these last seven phrases or words that Jesus is saying, most theologians say that Jesus is probably at his lowest point, but it, yet it's the highest point when it comes to theology about the crucifixion. Now, I want to make this simple. I want to be able to talk to you and not at you. I want to communicate you this. But listen, here Jesus Christ is probably at his lowest, but as far as theology and what it means for us, it's one of the highest points in Jesus' entire ministry. Somebody said, oh, I thought opening the blind eyes or curing the lepers or raising the dead. Listen, those were miracles, and his life was full of miracles. But we're about to discover what his ultimate purpose of coming to this world for. There are early crowds around Jesus say they've, they've all di- disappeared, and, and they're, just, they're standing around waiting for Jesus to die. And the Bible says this eerie darkness moves upon the entire area for three hours, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Now listen, noonday, that, that should be the brightest part of the day. But during the brightest part of the day, the Bible said the sun gets turned off. And for three hours, nothing is said or heard. You hear Jesus is saying nothing. There's this mute It seemed like all heaven is shut up. And then at the end of three hours, unexpectedly, out of this dreadful silence, comes this loud voice crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's this? The disciples had heard Jesus call upon God many times, but Jesus never used the term God. When he talked to the Father, he always used the Father, right? He had that relationship. They had heard him pray so many times, and they heard Jesus use Father. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, would you please teach us how to pray? And he says, pray like this, our Father, which art in heaven. And he goes through the whole reset. Listen, the, the disciples marveled at the closeness that Jesus had. They knew that he knew the Father very closely and lovingly. And I can rem- imagine the, the, the shock that's going across the crowd as a darkness comes in. And then after three hours, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's happening? Let me, let me give you, th- I, I want to I wanna, I wanna give you the opportunity to clear away three major misconceptions about what Jesus is saying on this cross. What these words cannot possibly mean. First of all, number one, it, he cannot mean that he's crying for the help of Elijah. Eli, Eli what was, a, was a Hebrew word. It, it really meant 
oh my God. You know, they, what they were hearing was, oh my God, my God, my God. And, and it just come out of nowhere. It's just like, you know, here a while back, we're, we're traveling and going somewhere in sunshine. She's my backseat driver. She's in the back. And, and I'm driving. Rhonda's up there. We're talking. And I turn somewhere and just out of nowhere. Now, sister, sunshine calls me Dr. Phil. She calls me her sugar baby. She calls me her honey bun. But out of nowhere, she, I turn and she kind of slides in the seat and she said, oh, my God, Phil. Did she just, just, and Rodney and I was just in shock. Like, she never said feel without doctrine, and I'm just stunned. What I almost hit a wall because I what, but but listen, it's it's almost that tone that this crowd gets startled out of the darkness. They hear this man hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God. Now, now the chief priests standing around, they try to take that, and that they knew what it meant in Hebrew. They, they knew Arabic. They also knew, and I'm going to take you there, they knew that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew that it's the first verse of Psalms 22. They knew it wasn't Elijah, but what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to turn. They're, they're mocking Jesus. They're, 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 I think they're in shock of all this darkness that's been happening out of nowhere, and now this voice is crying. So, so they knew Jesus is deliberately quoting. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. They knew what he was doing, but yet they tried to convince the crowd that somehow or another the brain of Jesus is getting confused and he's starting to falter, and he's about to die. So they, they offer him some wine that, that they want to give him on a stick to try to ooh, ease the pain, but he refused that. But they're trying, to, they're trying to deflect the crowd and say, oh, look, he's calling for Elijah. And I'll tell you what that means in just a second. But listen, it cannot mean that Jesus is looking for Elijah. Secondly, it cannot mean that Jesus says, I feel deserted. Now listen, circle that word feel or felt. I think it's in your notes. He felt deserted. Listen, how many of the sins that feelings are very deceptive to us? And listen, so many times when, when, when a Christ follower can get into trouble, you get into illness, you, you have difficulty, or you, you, you suffer some type of, of uncertainty or some loss, I've seen people come beside people like that. And sometimes people say, well, just I want you to understand, Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Remember, he hung on the cross during those six hours, and he had all this pain and all this thing going on. And at some point, Jesus felt like God had left him. So with that, with that, some theologians with that thought, they say what's happening to Jesus is the same thing that happened to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the one that said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. John had repeatedly proclaimed who Jesus was. Matter of fact, two of his disciples left John, started following Jesus. We just preached about that a few weeks ago. And But when John got in prison and he was on trial he, that was going to take Take his life, John began to doubt whether. So he sent his disciples. He said, Go find Jesus and ask him, Is he the Messiah or should we look for the other? Okay? Now, some theologians say that Jesus is having a John moment. That Jesus is now on the cross experiencing some type of wonder or doubt. He, he, has, he has temporarily lost confidence in the presence of God's love for him, and now he's feeling, listen, he's feeling abandoned, okay? He feels abandoned. Now, here's the problem with that. The father and son had already, has always been one since the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was, the word was what? With God, the word was God. John chapter 1. Go all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created. God who? Let us make man. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy. Listen, they have always been one. The Bible says in Acts 15, 18, that God knows all the ways from the beginning. 
You understand that Jesus knew what his destiny was when he come to this earth 33 and a half years ago prior to being crucified. Jesus knew from the very moment that he arrived, the hour would come that he would lay down his life for the world's sins. He knew that. He knew that he had come to accomplish redemption for the sinners by sacrificing himself. He knew that. It is unthinkable to imagine that somehow or another at this moment, Jesus is becoming perplexed and disturbed, and all of a sudden he has reason to doubt the love of the Father for him. But again, I remind you, every time they offered him some wine and myrrh to try to deaden one, he he always refused. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that all of his senses stayed alert all the way up to the end. His his feelings of, of, of abandonment, listen, was not there because he wasn't upset. He knew the plan of God. You follow me? He understood what his purpose was. The Bible teaches that, or some theologians say, well, you know what, he's really upset. He's really upset because God didn't send down the angels from heaven to rescue him. Matter of fact, you, you can read the story about when they, when they come to, to take Jesus away in Matthew 26, and there are about 600 soldiers come to arrest Jesus, okay? They show up, and, and uh, you, you know the story that, the, you know, Peter grabs his sword and cuts off one of the person's ear, and Jesus said, no, Peter, put your sword away. Jesus reaches down, you know, puts his ear back on. A miracle right before they're going to take him. I mean, that miracle alone, God, should have woke some people up, but it didn't. 600 guys around him, but in, in Matthew 26 and 30, uh, 53, Jesus looked at me and said, Guys, don't you think that, that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once dispose more than 12 legion of angels? Now get this, listen. You know, you know, you know how, much, uh, how many uh, uh, angels are in the legion? There's 6,000 angels in the legion, Okay. Remember the guy in Mark in the tomb that had a legion of devils? There were 6,000 demons in that man that Jesus freed him up. But the Bible says there's a a legion makes up 6,000 angels. Jesus said, don't you know that my father has at my disposal 12,000? That's 72,000 angels. Can you imagine what 72,000 angels could have done? Matter of fact, let me show you. Listen, Isaiah, Isaiah 37 and 36 says that one night, one angel, one angel, not 6,000, not 12, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers. That's some bad angels right there. Come on now. Bad angels. Jesus said, I've got 12 legion. I've got 72,000 legion of angels that I could call 72,000 angels. You know how many angels could, uh, how many people that 72,000 angels could kill? They could kill 13,320,000,000 people. There's less than 8 billion people in the entire world, folks. Jesus had all the power that he needed. At his disposal, he understood that. There's no way that he's feeling abandoned. He's moved to despair. Because, listen, he'd spent a lifetime obeying the Father. He spent a lifetime for this moment. Jesus knew what his purpose was. (laughs) I love that. It can't mean because it's, it's suggesting that somehow or another that he becomes a failure at the greatest moment. Because listen, just, just a little bit later, after he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says he's going to stretch out his arm and he's going to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He, listen, why, why, how in the world could you go from feeling abandoned by this guy to all of a sudden that you're trusting that he's going to be with you during that moment of your darkest hour? No, listen, he's not calling for Elijah. He, 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 he's not feeling. Now, listen, feeling is important. He's not feeling abandoned. Thirdly, some suggest that what he's actually saying is God is actually with him. In other words, it means the opposite. He, he's not saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually means, I know God is with me, but something is happening. 
It's, 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 not, it's not supposed to be a cry of abandonment. Jesus is trying to have a cry of victory. But here's the problem. Theologians say that he started out quoting Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the midst of that, he runs out of energy. He runs out of life. And before he gets to the end of Psalms 22, because the end of Psalms 22 says, I will declare your name to my brothers. You who fear the Lord, I want you to praise him. So theologians say, well, what happened was, in that moment, Jesus started out victorious. He started out, you know, feeling like this is going to be a triumph. But somewhere along the way, he became delirious and he fainted and he stopped being able to quote the psalm because his heart and his mind is going to finally give up and he's just going to kind of give in to it. How sad. How sad. There is no way that Jesus is actually saying that somehow or another, I believe, God, you're with me and you're going to get me to victory because the Bible says at the very end of all this, he's going to shout with a loud voice, it is finished. He's not going to say, I'm finished. He's not going to look and say, hey, boys, I did the best I could, bro. Hey, hey, man, love you. I tried. Hello, come on, right? He didn't say, I'm finished. He didn't say, oh, you know, I had a pretty good idea of God, but I almost had it. I just was almost. I tried. Peace out. No, no. He said, it is finished. The work is complete. I've done what I come to do. You follow me? He's saying, listen, I'm not saying I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The work is finally complete. And he gives up the ghost. Now watch this. So we know what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean? What is God trying to teach us on the cross asking this question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So write this down. Christ was forsaken. It wasn't a feeling of being forsaken. It wasn't a thought of being abandoned. Even though he had always been with the Father, he had always had fellowship with the Father, God was always there. He would communicate early in the morning. He would talk in the afternoon. He felt this tremendous love by God. He was love by the Father. Matter of fact, I put this note, I put this verse, John 16 and 32. He would tell his disciples earlier, he said, a time is coming, in fact, has come when you're going to be scattered each to your home and you're going to leave me alone. Jesus, Jesus knew the dude wasn't going to hang around. He knew it. But he says, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. You understand that Jesus knew he was on assignment. He is following his destiny, doing the will of the Father. Listen, how many understand that sometimes when you do the will of God, it's not always easy? See, some people want a Christianity to say, oh, you know, I do the will of God. It's always so great and awesome and wonderful. Listen, you, you can tell sometimes when our worshipers come up here to worship, they're, they're using their talent, they're using their gift, but they're fighting demons sometimes trying to sing. Hello. They're, 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 it's, it's not always when they walk on this platform, it's like, it's like the heavens open up and the anointing falls. Listen, sometimes they're digging deep. They're look, listen, you think they look sometimes a little bit bad? You ought to look at your faces. I mean, you multiply, you multiply it, right? But what does Pastor Lindsay do? What does our worship team, what does our mu musician do? They know they're doing the will of the Father. Even when it's difficult and hard, they keep pressing on. Jesus knew. He said, you're going to leave me, but I'm not alone. The Father is with me. Yet there comes a strange time. Now listen, to everybody say strange time. It's uncharted territory for Jesus. That God would pull back his rod and his staff to comfort him. And God would literally abandon and forsaken him. So Christ isn't just being troubled, okay? He's not, he's not having these feelings. It's, it's not emotions running wild. This is the real thing. 
this, 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 is a, this is a divine forsaken that's about to take place. It wasn't a crack that's developed between Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, okay? It's, it's not even, not any jealousy going on. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're still just being one. They're one in their wisdom. They're one in their power. They're one in their justice. They're one in their goodness. But this awesome fellowship that Jesus has always enjoyed will have to be temporarily severed. The God-man and the the Father God will have to break ties. Now listen, every one of us in this room, at some point, I guarantee you, you've either felt or you've, you've walked along beside somebody who has felt abandoned by people who they thought cared about them. We see it in our broken world. How could a mom abandon a child? We see it. How could a wife abandon her children and her husband? We see it. How could a husband abandon their, his family? We see it happen in this broken world. And here it is. The Son of God is about to be forsaken by his own loving Father. There, there, there's, a, there's an enormous moral and theological problem with about to what's going to take place. Because if, if, if he had never known what, he had never known anything but his father's love, but now while hanging on that cross, he's about to be forsaken. And if we don't understand what's happening at this moment, if we don't grasp not, not, not every theological term and not everything, I'm not going to take you all through the Old Testament. Brain, but listen, if we, don't, if we don't grasp and understand why Jesus was totally abandoned and forsaken by God the Father, we have a tendency sometimes to accuse our Heavenly Father of child abuse. We accuse him of abandoning us. You lose a child, you lose a relationship, you lose a job, you lose whatever, and somebody, you know, full of Christianity, not full of Jesus, somebody full of Christianity puts their arms around you and said, oh, Jesus knew what it was to feel abandoned by God. He know. And he makes you feel like that somehow or another, you wasn't good enough and you didn't measure up so God the Father has backed off and said, you're on your own. That makes sense? And here's the sad thing about it. A lot of people live their life that way. A lot of people live their life that way. It's the reason why some people give up on church. Well, I tried, God. I mean, I was going to church, and I was, I was trying to do everything right, and my wife got killed. My child died. I lost my job. Oh, whatever. And, and they, they, they take that moment in their life and their time and they stick it into a category and say, well, if God abandoned his own son, who am I to think I deserve anything better? Yeah. So what's happening? He didn't feel abandoned. He was abandoning. But here's the question. We got to say, why? Everybody say, why? Look at your neighbor and say, why? What's happening here? Listen, write this down. Jesus was abandoned to pay for our sins. Listen, on the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Why was that? Because God had put a promise together way back in the Old Testament of Amos 8 and 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. He wasn't just referring to a judgment that was going to come upon Israel for their sins. He's talking about a time that darkness would come and it would be a sign, not of just judgment for Israel, it would be a sign of God's judgment being brought down upon his only son, Jesus Christ. It would be in that moment, Matthew 28 and 20 said, the Son of Man has come not to serve but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Listen, it was on that 
first Good Friday that a ransom would be paid for our sin. And Jesus' life would be that ransom. Jesus would be judged by God on the cross for all of our sin. He would die the death that we should have died for our sin. The wages of sin is death. But he died, why? So we could go free. He was forsaken. He was deserted. Why? Jesus knew that God would not rescue him from the cross. He knew that the angels was not coming. He knew that he had to die because sins had to be paid for. And the only way that could happen The only way that God could stand to see his son go through that horrible death was that he would have to turn his face away from his son. It's what makes Christianity so remarkable among all the religions of the world. Write this down. God is just in condemning sin. He's just in condemning sin. But he's also a God who is loving and never abandoning his people. What could change God's mind from condemnation to the deepest love for us? The Bible tells us, listen, the Bible tells us, he introduced his son, he introduces the means of satisfying his own justice towards sin for us by demanding a sacrifice. And here's what makes Christianity so unique. Many religions demand sacrifices, but what makes Christianity so unique is that in God's mercy, he doesn't just demand a sacrifice, he provides a divine, eternal sacrifice for us. When you go to the Old Testament and see the millions of animals that were slaughtered, the bloods of bulls and goats and animals that the priests would have to take, and they would take that blood, and they would go into the holies of holy and offer it. Listen, every one of the blood, every one of those animals, it was a representation of soon one day the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would stay on that cross and let God's judgment come down on him. He, he, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 9 and 12, he did not enter by means of blood, a blood of bulls and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The priest had to do this over and over and over and over and over again. The Son of God would take his own blood and he would obtain that eternal sacrifice, that eternal redemption, and he would pay for our sins once and for all. That's what makes Christianity so different. A lot of religions want you to do this and do that. If you believe the right thing and you behave the right way, then you can belong to us. That's what religion says. Jesus says, If you believe, you belong. Isn't that amazing? The thief on the cross, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, man, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Not because he behaved the right way. Not because he had all the right doctrine. Because he truly believed in Jesus. And that's what we have to do. That's what we put our faith in. But in order for that sin to be paid for, God had to abandon Jesus. So he was abandoned to pay for our sins. Secondly, Jesus was abandoned to forgive our sins. Again, the Jewish tradition says that Elijah would come down from heaven and rescue the righteous in their distress. We said earlier there, there's people in the crowd, the priests, they say, well, he's calling for Elijah. Let, let's wait and see whether or not Elijah would come and save him. And, and, and people say, well, you know, if that would happen, then the, then, the, then the crowd somehow or another, they would believe that Jesus was truly a righteous man of God. No, they wouldn't. They were just mocking Jesus. And listen, it's possible to read the story of Jesus and the crucifixion sometimes and say, man, if I was there, if I'd been at the foot of the cross, if I'd been, uh, I want to tell you, Pastor, right now, I would have never mocked Jesus. I, I would have said, I believe. Well, you wouldn't. 
Listen, there are still people today that we are so blind to our sin. We're blinded to it. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of things that we know that separates us from God, the wages of sin and death. And instead of us surrendering, uh, you know, gently and say, okay, God, work on that. Work in me, Holy Spirit. Get that stuff out of me. What do we do? We want to push back on it. Oh, it ain't that bad. Everybody in the culture is doing it now, Pastor. It's so acceptable now. I mean, I know, I know it used to be a thing in the old, but now this is a new. No, sin still separates us from God. Jesus tried to tell the disciples, we, we just celebrated this last week when he was sitting at the Passover meal in Matthew 26. He said he took the cup and he'd given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, this this is about to take place in just a few hours from now. I'm about to make the ultimate sacrifice. God the Father has got to turn his back for a season so I can pay for your sin, and I will forgive you of your sin. And Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross. Why? So we might be forgiven. Jesus would be that Lamb of God. He wouldn't be an animal. He would be the Lamb of God that come from the very bosom of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ would be be that Lamb. We've been preaching it for over 2,000 years, and yet many people still refuse to accept it. They get in called in religion. I say, I just... Pastor, it's just too simple. Me trusting Jesus, me, me asking Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life, and that's it. No, surely i got to jump through some hoops. Surely there's got to be something i got to memorize. Surely there's got to be something else i got to do. No, that's religion. Religion says you got to do, you got to do, you got to do. You Christianity relationship with Jesus said, it is done. It's finished. I paid the price. Your sins are forgiven because of what I've done. I have kept that promise that I would make. Wow. That's the reason why he come to this world. He lived a sinless life to stand in our judgment, to be absolutely and positively our substitute on the cross of Golgotha. So the divine justice against our sin would be fully paid for. I love that. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 53 and 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. The punishment that brought us peace. He died so we can live. His stripes so so we can be healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Therefore, Romans 5 and 1 said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Everybody say faith. Not justified through church membership. Not justified through doing good works. We are justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did everything that was necessary to be done, that sinners, you like you and me, might have total peace with God. He stood in our place. I love that. Until all was done and he had perfected all that the Father had given him to do. So he was abandoned to pay for our sins. He was abandoned to forgive our sins. And then lastly, he was abandoned to bring us acceptance with God. It's not just about well, your sins are paid for. You're forgiven. How do we have this ongoing relationship with God the Father? How do we communicate to such a holy God when we are still men and women who have faults and failures? You ever, you ever struggle with that? Who am I that God would one second listen to me? Jesus finished, when we start finishing the story in Matthew 27, the Bible says in verse 50, but others said, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. Now, remember he cried out first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
They said, maybe Elijah's coming. Maybe They said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah. Then he said, he cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And at that moment, everybody say, at that moment. That veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. So he's not feeling abandoned. He is abandoned. God is totally turning his back on him to to pay for our sins, to forgive our sins, but also to make us acceptable before God, where we can have total access to God. He's being mocked by the people, but at that moment that Jesus dies, the Bible says that curtain, and I've got a picture. that This is a very thick, this was a curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. To get beyond that curtain, you had to be a high priest. You had to be a holy man, and you would take that blood sacrifice time and time again, and you would go in, and they would tie a cord around the priest's ankle in case he went into the holies of holies, and somehow or another, he jacked up inside, okay, and he would die. So they nobody could go in there after him. So you know what they do? How would you like to be assigned to pull? We got to pull this dude out. Pull, he didn't make it. And they had been doing that for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And here Jesus shows up. And when he dies and he shouts with a loud voice, the Bible said that thick curtain just splits in half. That separated the holy place from the most holy place. Where God dwelled. And listen, and it's at that moment. It's at that precise moment when Jesus was abandoned by God on the cross, he shed his blood for the sacrifice of the sin, that the curtain was torn. And then all of a sudden, God says, now every person that believes in him, now you have total access and acceptance to the Father. Our sins no longer separate us from God. We, we have now complete open access to God all the time. We can pray to him all the time whenever. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a special prayer person. Listen, because you trust and believe in Jesus, you can go to God because we have total access. What we have to do is say, God, and he's there to listen to us. We have total access. And yet there's people in this world go to church every Sunday and they think somehow or another, ah, you know, I just, I'm not quite holy enough. I haven't done enough good things yet, Pastor Phil. I feel like I still got to achieve some more accomplishments. No, no, no. What you've got to understand is accept what Jesus did on the cross, that God abandoned him to pay for your sin, to forgive your sin, and say, listen, that wall, that curtain is now open right up and we can come boldly. We can walk boldly. We can walk boldly into the throne room of grace and we can find help and need in our time of this. Hallelujah. The sinless one replaces the sinner himself. Jesus was abandoned, so why? So we could be accepted. He stayed underneath the lash. He stayed underneath the nails. He stayed in the darkness so we could go free. I love that. The right, the unrighteous men like you and I, people who have never rendered God his full due, people who have never acted totally honorable towards God, Christ says, listen, I'm going to be abandoned, and I'm going to become your substitute. I'm going to become your sin barrier. I'm going to become the one that is condemned so you can go free. That's what's happening. It's at that moment that Jesus says, by what I'm doing right now, by what's happening to me, by me experiencing and letting God forsake me, here's the promise I'll make. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You'll never be alone. Yeah, but pastor, I, I just feel like this trial, I just feel like at this moment, I just, I just feel, no, it doesn't matter what you feel like. He's promised that this reason why you've got to go by the word of God, not by your feeling. He's promised that I'll never leave you alone. You'll never walk through anything that I won't be. He was condemned so we might be forgiven. He dies so we can live. He drinks the bitter cup so we can have the cup of salvation. He was forsaken so we could be accepted by God and never, ever be forsaken. That's why God forsook him. God didn't cradle him in his arms at that moment on the cross. Come on, Pastor Lindsay. And hold him real tightly and say, oh, son, I just, 
I just hate you. God, we go, no. Listen, from the very foundation of the world, from the moment Jesus made entrance into this world through the Virgin Mary in the, in, the, in the little manger, from the moment he came into this earth, he was on a destiny mission. And he knew at some point when he would get to that cross, the only way for this thing to really come to climax and be what God intended it to be, to be one final sacrifice that God would have to forsake him. that God would walk away. And at that moment, God would make Christ a sin barrier that he himself would become condemned with our sin. He would become our scapegoat. Old Testament, they had scapegoats. Priests lay their hands upon them. They were allowed to go. Jesus would become our scapegoat, sent out into the wilderness of God's condemnation. condemnation. He would be the full atonement that would be completed. First Peter says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Not going to have to do it again. Not, not, oh, Jesus, we, man, we missed this. There was this little point of the law that you didn't fulfill. No, he fulfilled every bit of the law when he was here. You understand that? He didn't make a mistake. Once and for all, for sins, the righteousness for the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Come on. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered the just for the unjust. Why? That we might be brought to God. And when you feel worry and you feel the blame and the shame for having done things that you knew you shouldn't have done, People say, Pastor, I just, I just wish I could turn the clock back. Man, I passed the time. You what, Pastor? I just, I just wish if I could erase from the record of my memory of the things I've done. You ever felt that way? Listen, all you need to do is remember that Christ on the cross of Calvary stood there with his blood. And he started to wipe clean all the guilt, every spot, every wrinkle, all the things that tarnish us and mess us up, all the things that we ever did, all the things that we will ever do. He wiped it clean. The Bible says in Psalms that he remembers our sins no more. The Bible says he puts them in a sea of forgetfulness. And one old timer says he puts up a sign that says no fishing. Come on now. No fishing. Devil ever tried to bring to your mind things you messed up, things you did? Oh, I wish I hadn't did that. All you have to do is remind Satan, said, listen, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. God will never recall. Galatians 2 and 20, this is the gospel. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by good church attendance. I live by paying my tithes. No, I want you to come to church. I want you to sow into the kingdom. But he said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Woo! That's how I live. That's where the freedom comes from. And you can tell exactly who people go to church and just get religion, but don't get relationships. Religious people, they feel good and then they feel bad. They have high days and they have low days. They have good moments and they have bad moments. Relationship people says, listen, I'm in this broken world. I get tossed to and fro just like you. The storms beat my house just like they do your house. But the only difference is my foundation is built on a rock, and that rock is Jesus. <laughs> And when Satan tries to bring to my memory things that I've done or I didn't do, he tries to make me feel guilty. I said, Satan, wait, just wait just one minute. All you got to do is go back to the cross. Jesus has already taken care of that. His blood was the ultimate sacrifice. The life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. That's how I live. Now, because of that, I go to church and I pay tithes and I serve. I, but listen, I do all those things because of not trying to earn anything. 
So let me, let me close with this. Let me go back real quickly. I got to, I got, I got to, I want to, I want to say biblical. I remind you that this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of the Mosaic Psalms. About 10% of the Psalms with Mosaic. There are Psalms that are called Psalms of Lament. And some of the Messianic Psalms would be Psalms also of Lament. A lament in the Old Testament could be described as just kind of a loud religious ouch to God. You know, oh God, what's going on here? And, and the laments that you find in, in the Old Testament, about one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. They follow this pattern. And typically a lament begins with the expression of grief. That's what Psalms 22 does. It has this expression that, that God doesn't seem to be doing his job. Okay? God, where are you at? Stuff's happening, and you're not doing your job. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my anguish groans? My God, I cry out during the day, but you don't answer. Even at midnight, even at nighttime, I don't stop. You see, you see the lament? You see the anguish? So it starts out saying, God, wait a minute. You're not doing your job, dude. And then lament will turn to pleads for help. In the middle of Psalms 22, he says, But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You're my strength. Come quick and help me. And finally, a lament psalm will end with expressions of affirmation or trust. Wait a minute, God. Wait, wait, wait. I, I know you've been faithful in the past. I, I, I know. Hey, listen, I'll be honest. I've, I've lost it a little bit on the again. I, I'm wondering where you're at. I, I, I know you're my help. But then that lament psalm will move towards the end of Psalm 22, and it ends like this. All of you who, re who revere the Lord, praise Him. All of you who are Jacob's descendants, honor Him. All of you who are all Israel's offspring, stand in awe of Him. Because He didn't despise nor detest the suffering of the one who suffered. He didn't hide His face from me. No, He listened when I cried out to Him for Him. Jesus knew that this messianic psalm, this psalm of lament, it started out, my God, my God, why? But he also knew that it moved towards the end where God shows up and the work and the plan of God is happening. And we summarize that, God, you're not doing your job. We Come on, we've all been there. God, you need to do your job. But some of us never get to that third point, God, I am confident you will do your job because you have in the past. Jesus knew, he knew that the religious people around him, he knew that they knew the pattern of these laments. He knew that, that that's the reason why he only quotes the beginning of the psalm, because he knows the end of this thing. He knows how it's going to end up. He starts with the most despairing question, but he knows ultimately when he dies, and they think, well, it's done, he's over. No, he ain't over. It's finished, right? Come on. They take him off the cross. They put him in a grave. They seal it up. They put guards there thinking, man, we're done with this dude. He's gone. He's history. No, no, no. He's going to get up on the third day, and he's going to be risen, and he's going to show himself alive, and he's alive today in this house, in every one of our houses, showing himself strong. What do we need to do? We need to have the affirmation of faith. Do we revere the Lord? Do we praise Him? Are we descendants of Israel? Do we stand in awe of Him? We, listen, because God will not despise or detest the suffering of the one suffered. He won't hide His face. He will listen when I cry to help. Jesus! Wait a minute, wait a minute. My, my kids are in trouble. Stop. Stop. Sunshine asked me the other day, we were riding, she said, Dr. Phil, I was driving good that day. She said, Dr. Phil, what is Jesus doing today? I said, Sunshine, that is a great question. I said, you know what Jesus is doing? 
Those two phone calls that I, you heard me have, she said, yeah. I said, those people's got things. I said, you know what Jesus is doing right now? He's making intercessions. He's praying for those people. I said, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for everybody. You understand that every day, Jesus is standing in the gap for you. You're not alone. Don't make the devil feel like God's abandoned you in this sickness or this trial, this relationship, this financial struggle, whatever it is. Some of you are feeling it. Don't believe the lie. He is close to the broken heart. Thank you for listening to Heartland Christian Center Sermon of the Week. If you would like to partner with us and give, please go to hcc.ag and click to give tab. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with others. Also, if you have a prayer request or want to contact Heartland, please email us at pastorphil at hcc3d.com. Have a blessed week.